Now on Documentary on News Talk, we remember the events of September the 11th, 2001, and hear the story of its first official victim, proud Irish American and chaplain to New York Fire Department, Father Michael Judge. This is Last Hour, the story of 9-11's first victim. The World Trade Center, tower number one, is on fire. The whole outside of the building was just a huge explosion. this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center right now is just beginning to... Is, are they going to be able to get somebody up here? Well, boss man, we're coming up for you. Well, there's no one here yet and the floor is completely engulfed. We're on the floor and we can't breathe. I'm burning up. Hello? Help! Hello, ma'am? On Lake Kesh, County Leitrim, a garden blossoms in honour of the first official victim of the World Trade Centre attacks. Father Michael Judge, chaplain to New York City's Fire Department, is remembered here. But how this came to pass is a story that began on the morning of September 11, 2001. Life, life and death, so valuable. And you wonder when my last half hour is going to be, or my last hour, what will it be? Will it be doing something for someone, trying to save a life? As thousands of people tried to escape the Twin Towers, hundreds of firemen were rushing the other way. Father Michael Judge went into the burning building to help the injured and to pray for the dying. The 68-year-old priest lost his life when the first tower came down. The now iconic image of the fallen chaplain being carried by rescue workers from the rubble of the towers appeared throughout the world the next day. While Father Michael's death is still extraordinary, many believe his life is even more so. This is his story. He's unlike any other priest you ever met. Michael had a tiny little diamond earring. He was a very handsome, six foot four Irishman, very, very, you know, he had silver hair. He was a very uh, big presence and a personality bigger than his size. Well, when I first met him, I knew there was something special about him. I don't know if he was a saint. He wouldn't want to be called a saint. But, you know, he, he must have been, because there was just something special about him. God made everything good and he created man and woman to his image and likeness and he made it. In his favorite place, a firehouse, doing his favorite thing, saying mass. It's September 10th. He says, don't worry about anything, what we're going to eat, 
and what we're going to wear and what we're going to do. Don't worry about it. Stay in today and your Heavenly Father will take care of you and everything will be given to you. Stay in today. Don't get into tomorrow. All about God in our lives. It's just absolutely fantastic. It's fantastic how I can sometimes begin a day and go through a day and hopefully say a prayer here and there, but not realize that everything that happens, every single thing that happens is somehow within the divine plan. Judges Shore, Lake Kesh, County Leitrim in Ireland. A peace and memorial garden lies here in memory of Father Michael. It is on this land that the Franciscan priest's own father, Michael Judge Sr., was born. In early 2001, just months before he died, local farmer John Keeney remembers bringing Father Michael to see his ancestral home. This is the original? That's the original wall. That's all that's left of it, that gibbling. I probably met Father Michael, yeah. I didn't know really he was Father Michael George up here at the time. Actually, someone sent him up said they didn't know where the judges were. So he, I was standing on the street and he asked me, um, where's the judges homestead around here? Yeah, you're right, I have it. Oh, he said, good. So we came up to see it then. Oh, well, my father bought the land from the judges. Directly, I think my father bought it. He bought it for 300 pounds. 29 acres, I think, was in it all. So he bought the 29 acres for 300 that time, and where the monument is built as well. And he didn't need it, he said, but he, he just said he'd buy it when he got it. And 50 years ago, and yeah, I'm sure. I was only a young lad. I had no grey no hairs then. And the father went to America. I think he came back on holidays, and he met his, his wife, there was going to be his wife eventually, little Kieran. He made her here. The two of them went back to America. But they owned all this uh, land. He took a, a, a small stone out of the wall just to bring with him. He was delighted. If he won the sweep, he wouldn't be more delighted. So I brought him back for tea. And uh, gave him the tea. Rather than much chicken and chips, I think it was. Brought him down that night and we were talking to him for a good while. And as I've told before, he... Um, when he was leaving, we went out to sh- sh- wave goodbye to him. So he told the driver to hold it and come back. And he says, that's a sure sign of an Irish welcome. That most times, he says, when the priest comes to the house, you make the tea for him and they close the door and say, thanks be to God, he's gone. <laughs> but not in this case, he says. He was delighted to see that. He called it an Irish welcome, you know. And he was, there was no, the most of them were okay anyway, like, you know. But he could see it, that... Uh, <laughs> he got the welcome, you know. Michael Judge Sr. and his wife, Mary Fallon, crossed the Atlantic Ocean to America 
to begin their new life in Brooklyn, New York City in 1926. They would have three children, a daughter, Erin, a son, Michael, or Robert Emmett as he was christened, and his twin sister, Dimpna. His father and mother met actually coming over on the boat and um, just before she left was driven to leave Leitrim for the reasons everybody left Leitrim. She actually won a prize for a garden and she took a cutting of that and she kept it alive all the way across the water, kept it alive as she worked as a domestic. And then when she and her husband won the Irish sweepstakes and were able to buy a house in Ireland, she planted it in the backyard and now has taken over the entire block of Brooklyn. <laughs> and Micah used to love and just go and say, see that ivy? He used to say, you want to know how tough my mother was? I have a twin sister and her birthday is three days apart from mine. And I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. So she was a hard case. And uh, his father was kind of quite the opposite. Father Michael's close friend and journalist, Mike Daly, explains life was to get tougher for Mrs. Judge. His father became ill when he was three and then was in the hospital for three years and children were not allowed and he used to go stand on the street corner and look up and his father was literally a figure on high, which kind of explains maybe why he became a priest. On his trips across the Brooklyn Bridge to Manhattan as a young teenager, Michael would often pass by the church of St. Francis of Assisi on West 31st Street. He was drawn to the simple Franciscan way of life and decided to enter the seminary. One of his classmates was Father Patrick Fitzgerald. I met Father Michael Judge September 11, 1951. We knew each other 50 years to the day. We were ordained in 61. We were stationed in different places. And so he, Michael Judge was here in, uh, in New York City area, in New Jersey, mostly, or here at St. Francis. We both came here in 1986. We were college buddies prior to 86. From the time he came here, we became best friends. Over the course of the years, you get to know each other through the stories so Mrs. Judge, uh, Mary Ann Judge, had no uh, skill sets, as we say today, uh, but she had to feed and educate and clothe her children. Fortunately, her husband bought this house and it was, the mortgage was paid. And so she took in boarders and every time a person, a tenant, or a boarder left, the kids had to clean the room out and paint it often so that paintbrushes were, to him, uh, not something he liked to, to, uh, to see. And when we were students studying philosophy, he was appointed to the paint squad and was too afraid to tell the superior, the guardian, that uh, just a paintbrush brought back bad memories from growing up in Brooklyn. And uh, he used to shine shoes across the street in Penn Station to bring the money home. But Mrs. Judge, uh, her three children were all college educated. And so she did a good job. Tough Irish lady. But we, when she would come to visit him, uh, 
many of the students who were friends of his, they would all circle around and she would tell stories which were hilarious. Uh, but that was another side of her, of, of uh, entertaining. But to her children, the memories were not always uh, happy memories. Well, his, his mother was very active uh, with other Irish people here in New York uh, in promoting things Irish. And uh, there was money raised here. Uh, and it may have gone to a particular political party in Ireland. I'm being cautious. <laughs> but he was raised in a very Irish environment and uh, in his home and, and, and with, with his friends. And at the seminary, there were other, a couple of other students who were classmates who were from Irish families. And uh, Pat Morris, who was a good friend of his from the Bronx, very Irish family. Uh, and so they did a lot of Irish things together here when they were on vacation with each other, such as visiting Irish places of hospitality in Manhattan. On the evening before their day off, <laughs> it would start at 2nd Avenue and 23rd Street and work their way north. <laughs> but he was... Irish in the Irish sense, not the Irish-American sense. Um, and one of the things he knew was that it's kind of an insult to uh, all things Irish to be racist. And because uh, the Irish suffered a little bit of that themselves. So he changed his name to Michael, M-Y-C-H-A-L, after a black basketball player. And all these Irish-Americans who were racist would say, oh, is that the Irish spelling? And he'd go, yes, it is. <laughs> And he was chaplain of the pipe band, the pipes and drums, and he loved that of the Emerald Society. And, well, he was good. Mm. And loved to was sing. It, was he a good singer, though? Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there is one nice one of him singing Frankie and Johnny. Little Frankie went down on the corner to get a little glass of beer. She says, Mr. Bartender, tell me, has my love and Johnny been here? Have you seen my man? I think he's doing me wrong. Did you see him anywhere, David? Well, it may have been after one of the excursions on uh, the evening before his day off with Timmy Morris that he uh, decided to, many, many years before tattoos became popular, of having a shamrock placed on his butt <laughs> he said, I ain't gonna tell you no story, honey. I sure won't tell you no lie. I saw old Johnny about an hour ago. Michael loved Brooklyn Bridge and would often walk from the church in Manhattan all the way downtown, across the bridge and out to Coney Island. Author Malachi McCourt describes his friend as being almost like a bridge himself between conflicting communities. It seems to me that he's one of those people that was here from creation, here all the time, and he was omnipresent. Like sometimes people would say, well, he was counseling a family in Long Island, which, which way out, out at the edge of, of, of New York State, in the, into the Atlantic, a couple hundred miles away. 
And I would think, well, I just, I happened to see him at a gathering at the Irish consulate at the same time. So I got this feeling that he was everywhere at once. He had this sort of like uh, messiah quality about him. And oddly enough, he was the most pagan Catholic that I knew. <laughs> he had such a, a wonderful, realistic uh, attitude. And he, he was um, not intolerant, but he was amused by the Irish becoming conservative. And uh, it, it, uh, but being also a follower of Jesus, he was very forgiving of that sort of, because my own thing about conservatism is that it's not political at all. It's uh, medical, it's a form of brain damage from which there's hardly any recovery. But, uh, but Michael George was, he was much more tolerant than me. <laughs> but actually he could, um, he, was, he, he was able to make friends with anybody, mm. rich or poor or right wing, left wing and all that. It wasn't that he didn't have to tolerate your, your view. He just simply was, as far as he was concerned, you're one of God's kids, so I love you. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Robert Bazell now in Atlanta. Father Michael was one of the very few Catholic priests who would administer to those with AIDS. Irish gay rights activist and close friend of the priest, Brendan Fay, explains how Father Michael went above and beyond the call of duty to help those suffering from the disease. So during the AIDS crisis, it was not enough for Michael just to be a priest ministering to people stricken with AIDS or to provide spiritual comfort for a community in the middle of a crisis or to do presided funerals. Michael Judge uh, set up in New York um, two, um, two agencies during the AIDS crisis. One was the Upper Room AIDS Ministry in Harlem. He actually set that up with um, uh, former Jesuit John McNeil. Um, both of them um, felt there was a real need um, that they felt basically that the gay community had responded to the crisis and was taking care in, in a positive way of its own community. But he felt that, they felt that a community that was very much neglected were the homeless and the poorest of the city. So they established the Upper Room AIDS Ministry in Harlem. Um, a second ministry that Michael established was the St. Francis AIDS Ministry, which he opened eventually in the church St. Francis down there on 31st Street. But he actually eventually, the donations came in and he opened up a storefront on 26th Street. But like I told you, Michael was not the best financial manager. He was the most generous. Money would come in, money would go out. He didn't hand it over to the superiors. He channeled it to where to needs throughout the entire city. And I think that's why people gave to Michael, because they could trust him. And that was amazing. As a Franciscan priest, Father Michael embraced his vow of poverty. So, what would he do with all the money that people entrusted him with? His fellow friar, Brian Carroll, recalls how he had a somewhat Robin Hood-like approach to giving to those in need. Michael was generous uh, with money and scrupulous with money. For uh, six years, I had a checking account which he used. Uh, he wouldn't 
have a checking account. And I finally had so much money coming in and out of my little, it was a, you know, we're friars, you have a little allowance, but I had a checking account. And I said, Michael, there's several thousand dollars in this. And then there's 6,000 one week, then two going out. And he was getting, I could see the money trail. I still have all the canceled checks in my uh, files. Uh, so I can follow his philanthropic history. But there were also money for apartments and for management companies. So I knew he was paying rents for so many of these men with AIDS. So he'd be getting money from here and here. And uh, and he never had a penny to himself. And I think what was uh, most telling, he always told me, if anything ever happens to me, if I get sick or I die, I want you to know where I hide my money. So I'm the only friar who knew where his stash was. And he had thousands of dollars stashed away. None for himself. He would get money from conservative people, and then he would write checks to the gay Irish parade in Queens for Brendan Fay. And so you'd see 2000 coming in from this lawyer who I know is a Republican, very conservative, and I'd see $2,000 going to Brendan for the Irish gay parade. You're listening to Last Hour, the story of 9-11's first victim, on Documentary on News Talk. While Michael loved the pageantry of St. Patrick's Day and of being Irish, his connection to Ireland ran a lot deeper. Michael embarked on a peace mission to Northern Ireland with his dear friend, NYPD detective Stephen MacDonald. In 1986, Stephen was shot while on duty in Central Park. Stephen forgave the teenager who shot him and wished to spread that message of forgiveness with the help of Father Michael. Father Michael Judge, a Franciscan friar, first visited the city in the summer of 1998 with Stephen MacDonald, a disabled New York policeman. Father Judge pushed his wheelchair on a journey of reconciliation around Belfast. He thought that he could come here, listen to people as he does, and then share the story of his own reconciliation, hoping that it would touch hearts and, uh, and it would maybe help some people. One person, if only one person, make a change in their life. In my country, there's plenty of violence, and I've shared that story of forgiveness, peace, and happiness, and it's helped many people, young and old. So I came here to Ireland. I'm a citizen of the Republic, and I thought that I could share that story with people, north and south, and hopefully it will help someone. And although the priest had his reservations about Americans coming to spread their good word to the people of Ireland, Patricia Loosely, MLA in Northern Ireland at the time, says the mission was a great success. The thing that always reminds me of Father uh, Michael Judge was he, he raised the issue with me about how amazing the um, it was after 30 years of conflict that we had reached this political agreement and now we had um, our own politicians in situ in the Assembly who were be if you like having the opportunity to deliver for for their own people and he said to me um he asked me did i ever keep a diary and i said well no not really and he said to me but you have to because you have to leave 
um, that history and that legacy to your grandchildren so that they know what you came through in order for them to have a better life in the future. And I kind of after that started one and and I kind of dip in and out as I go through life in kind of big chunks. Um, but I thought that was very interesting because he felt that that, that, that I, there was a responsibility on me to do that so that we could let young people know that there is a way through sometimes some of the traumas or some of the incidents that you meet in your life and that if you can talk and if you can work with people and facilitate you could actually have a positive outcome. I think he, he was just that kind of a person. The per, You know, no matter who he met, he kind of touched them in some way and, and I, he probably didn't do it intentionally but he kind of did it because he... He, it was the normal conversation, but he left you wondering about things, which I think was amazing about him. Father Michael really did become a father figure to so many people that he met. But he never claimed to be perfect, and he wasn't without his own demons. The loss of his own father at such a young age impacted on him greatly. His close friend Michael McNicholas remembers when they first met. I met Michael at a... Uh fundraiser for Mayor Dinkins at the time. He had just been appointed chaplain and there was a waiter going around serving some drink on a tray and I noticed Michael was in his Franciscan robes and that he declined to have a drink and I went up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and said how come you don't drink? And he said he had a terrible allergy to it. And I asked him if he was a friend of Bill, Bill Wilson, the founding member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said he was, and he shook my hand and gave me this wonderful hug. And we became friends since. A girl was killed in a car accident on a Friday or Saturday night. A Siena College student. And there was a state police barracks across the street from the campus. Loudonville, New York, outside Albany, New York. And the state police came across to the campus and uh, knew Father Michael and went to his room in the residence hall about 11 p.m. I think it was a Friday night and told him of the tragedy and would he, he come with them and uh, inform the parents. And he thought for a moment and he said to himself, I can say yes, I haven't had a drink today. And it's 11 p.m. And so he went with them. And in a very difficult situation for uh, police officers, uh, for the state police, and Michael informed the parents of this tragedy. And on the way back in the state police car, dropping him off on campus, the thought came to him, I have had my last drink. And he, that was on the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows, September 15th. He was short four days for 23 complete years of sobriety. And so... Uh, How did that change him? It didn't. It's just that there were no more uh, pub crawling. But that was a... Uh, a grace-filled moment of, of the family's tragedy uh, and his being open to the grace of acknowledging, you know, I'm going to AA tomorrow. I've had my last drink. 
on the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. But Father Michael's proudest moment would be when he was made chaplain to New York City's fire department. He would spend a lot of his time at the Firehouse Engine 1 Ladder 24, right across from the Church of St Francis of Assisi. Those close to him say that his last nine years as chaplain were the happiest of his life. Fireman Tim Farley says Father Michael's easy and caring manner helped them face the dangers of the job. We had a fire where we lost uh, three firemen on Watch Street, Manhattan. And Father Mike, the two died that night. One was instant, one died a couple hours later. And then uh, Captain Drennan, he lived for about 45 days, severe burns. He's the reason we have the bunk again now, Captain Drennan, because he was burned so bad. Giuliani said he had to do something. But anyway, uh, Father Mike was with him 45 days. Spent his time, you know, with the uh, the wife and everything. And uh, it was uh, Vina Drennan, who became very good friends with Mike. She was all the time. And after her husband passed, came by the firehouse all the time to see Mike. And uh, he just had a way of dealing with death and that yeah. it's not terrible, you know. The man never stopped working. You know, he talked like he'd be at these dinners with these socialites in Manhattan and then he'd be coming back and he'd be running to see somebody, you know, that was an aid victim, you know, and he, the man, the only time I ever really saw him stop working is 9-11 stopped and the man never stopped. We were always like, Mike, you gotta slow down, and he wouldn't stop. What he loved about firemen is that they could be a bunch of regular guys knocking around. When that bell goes off, when that alarm comes in, this kind of grace descends on them. And all of a sudden, they're totally willing to do absolutely anything to save people they've never met. He, he just thought that was beautiful. That's the way it is. Good days, bad days. Up days, down days. But never a boring day on this job. You do what God has called you to do. You show up, you put one foot in front of another, you get on the rig and you go out and you do the job, which is a mystery and a surprise. You have no idea when you get on that rig, no matter how big the call, no matter how small. You have no idea what God's calling you to. But he needs you. He needs me. He needs all of us. On the morning of September 11th, when news broke that a plane had gone into the first tower, Father Michael was in his room at the Friary in Manhattan. He immediately jumped into his car and headed downtown. His close friend and journalist Mike Daly explains what happened when he arrived at the Twin Towers. There was a fireman was killed by a jumper, one of the people jumping out the windows named Danny Sher. And when he was killed, the call went out for a fire chaplain. That was in the other tower. Michael didn't make it there. He was in the uh, North Tower and um, someone came to him and said there were a lot of dead people up in the plaza and he was needed. So he went up and he was saying a prayer for them. And the answer from above was a body landed right in front of the window and sprayed the window with what had been a person. And um, then there was a huge rumbling, and Michael ran out into the plaza because I think he thought the tower he was in was the one that was coming down. And then he realized it was the other one, and he ran back in, and he started down the escalator. And at that moment, the falling tower, the other tower, that sent a kind of hurricane of debris up the stairway to him, meet him, and I think that's, I think he literally was frightened to death. 
it's a testament to how brave he was that you could get that scared and not take one step away. I was off that day. Uh, I was home, and I shot in. I got there just after the two buildings came down. Uh, wasn't down there all too long, an hour or so, and I, I heard that, you know, he'd perished. We spent the whole day down there. We were working, working, and around 6 after seven World Trade Center collapsed, we were like, let's go back, we'll grab more tools, more stuff, and then we'll head back. And when I got to the firehouse, guys grabbed me, they go, Mike's laid out in the back. And they brought him, originally they brought him to a church downtown, uh, you know, by Ground Zero. And then the Franciscans didn't want him to go to the morgue, the city morgue, that the Franciscans do their own thing. So they took him from that church and they brought him to the firehouse. And the brothers at the firehouse brought down a bed. They put it together in the back of the uh, firehouse on the apparatus floor. Put the mattress, they laid him up, they wrapped him up in a sheet. They put two helmets next to him. And then they put a rope with a sheet so nobody could see from the street. And uh, it was very, it was, you know, with the way the day went, it was a very strange thing. Like you go there and, and uh, I just couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Out of all people that shouldn't have died that day, it should have been Mike, because we needed him after. I was shocked when I, I knew he was he was at the scene of, of uh, the Twin Towers, uh, but I never gave any thought that he was in harm's way. And it was in this room uh, where a friar asked to see me and I followed him into this room from the back of this house and he broke out into tears and he told me and I my brain I found out what shock is my brain protected me I wasn't ready for to hear that and so emotionally the, the brain shut down my emotions and so I was numb. And about six o'clock, I went outside, and a friar came along and says, Michael's body is across the street in the firehouse. So we were both in habits, and we went over. One of the officers led a few of the friars to pray for him. And then I was connected with reality again, with wailing, wailing. Uh, and so it, it was an experience of uh, what shock really is. Four days after the horrific attacks in which nearly 3,000 lives were lost, a funeral service was held for Father Michael. Thousands of people came to pay their respects to their beloved New York priest. Father Michael's fellow Franciscan priest, Father Michael Duffy, paid tribute to his dear friend. On Tuesday, one of our friars was walking down 6th Avenue and actually saw the airplane go overhead at a low altitude. And then, a little further, he saw smoke coming from one of the trade towers. 
he ran into the friary, it's Brian Carroll, he ran into Michael Judge's room, and he says, Michael, I think they're going to need you. I think the World Trade Towers is on fire. Michael was in his habit. So he jumped up, took off his habit, got his uniform on, and I have to say this in case you really think he's perfect, he did take time to comb and spray his hair. <laughs> but just for a second, I'm sure. He ran down the stairs and he got in his car. And with some firemen, he went down to the World Trade Towers. Michael Judge's body was the first one released from ground zero. His death certificate has the number one on the top. And I meditated on that fact of the thousands of people that we are going to find out who perished in that terrible Holocaust. Why was Michael Judge number one? And I think I know the reason. I hope you agree with me. Michael's goal and purpose in life at that time was to bring the firemen to the point of death so they would be ready to meet their maker. There are between two and 300 firemen still buried there, the commissioner told us last night. Michael Judge could not have ministered to them all. It was physically impossible in this life, but not in the next. Michael Judge, has always been my friend, and now he is also my hero. I decided to stay out in the street, and I had my habit on. And sure enough, Everell, this street person who was himself HIV positive, uh, who had signed himself out of the hospital, he was ill, and his only good suit was this old thrift shop tuxedo with sneakers on. Everill was, loved Michael, and Michael loved Everill. He was a good, good man. He always wore a scapula, and the police wouldn't let him through. So I went through and got him through the police line, brought him in the church, and sat him right behind the presidential, where Hillary Clinton and Bill were sitting, who I chatted earlier, nice people. And Everill was so proud, and people were shocked. But he was, Michael would have wanted him there. So I brought an outsider to the inside. But as I say, Michael's outsider, and this was evident, I stood in a little photo shop across the street from, in the doorwell from St. Francis. And there was this tough looking gal to my right with tattoos all over her arms. And she said, you want a fryer? I said, yeah. She said, yeah, Father Mike was special. I said, what did he do? He saved my life. He got me into sobriety. I was suicidal. I was doing tricks on 30th Street where all the trannies hang out. And Michael stopped by. He would always bring me food. He would bring me out for a cup of coffee. He got me to my first AA meeting. He saved my life. So in, in his beginnings are his endings. You know, Michael, I found all these people who were beginning new lives as Michael's life ended. And they were all on the outside of the church. And they were in the nooks and crannies of the funeral. And 
I was so blessed to have been able to be out in those margins, the outer place, even at his funeral. That's where all the action was. The politicians and everyone were blowing smoke up his ass in there, as he would say. And yet, he could get the money from the people inside <laughs> to help this kid go to school, to help her get dried out and get started. That's the checkbook made sense. Since his death, Father Michael has become a hero of 9-11. A ferry boat was named after him and a street in Manhattan has been renamed Michael's Way in his honour. And now some people want to go even further and make him a saint. But what would Father Michael, the self-deprecating, humble, irreverent outsider, make of that? His sister, and I agree with her, his twin sister, says he would consider it a demotion. Um, no, I mean, the whole message of Michael's life is that that goodness isn't everybody. And what you're supposed to do is recognize that in others. And if you recognize it and respond to it, that makes it stronger in them and in yourself. So to go around saying, well, there's certain people with these kind of paragons of perfectness, that goes against what Michael was trying to say. He was trying to say that, that uh, just as the devil's in evil, God is in good, and good's in everybody. And the way you find God is to find that good in other people. He would probably say, this is pure madness. <laughs> While at the same time, taking it all in and enjoying it. <laughs> uh, name is Carl. I'm a homeless resident of the city. You know, they said a lot of like good stuff about him, but they never said, he was a comedic genius. <laughs> yeah, he, he could have been in comedy, a big comedy star, man. You know? He would just tell you like a dozen jokes, a dozen funny stories, and it, it would be like, yeah, no idea what that punchline was going to be. You know? <laughs> yeah. But it was always funny. Yeah, so I missed him. Yeah, I missed the guy. But there are some obstacles that might stand in the way of Father Michael's sainthood. In the days after his death, it emerged that the priest was gay. It's been used by some people in New York as a way to discredit him. Either way, for the gay Catholic community, Father Michael has become a symbol of hope in their fight against prejudice. Well, I didn't know he was gay until uh, sometime after he died. And my feeling at first was that it was really Michael's business to tell whoever he wanted to tell or not. Um, but then there were a number of people who felt otherwise, and I think that ultimately worked for the good. Um, and the interesting thing is that if none of the firemen shunned him. And I think one of his great fears was that um, people like the firemen who he loved uh, would not, you know, would kind of step back from him, and, and they really didn't at all. It's kind of his ultimate miracle, his, last, his final miracle. Just before he died, Father Michael Judge made a rather significant phone call. Michael called me on Thursday night, the Thursday before 9-11, which was a Tuesday, primary day here in New York. And I answered the phone about 10.30 at night. We had a little chat that I go to a meeting. He, he'd been at a meeting. And then he said to me, you know, um, I'm going home to our Lord soon. And I said, anything wrong? What's wrong? He said, your heart? Are you okay? 
And he said, I'm going home to our Lord soon. And the day after 9-11, when we went to the rectory, Barbara and I went to the rectory, and we met Dipner and Aaron, Michael's two sisters. Dipner said to me, did Michael call you last week? And I said, he called me Thursday night. And he said he was going home to our Lord. And she said, he called me and told me the same thing. I talk to him all the time, but he doesn't answer me back. And um, it was just a privilege to have known him and to kiss him and hug him. And, you know, just a powerful human being. sometimes his voice saying to me Patty give the man a dollar life life and death so valuable and you wonder when my last half hour is going to be or my last hour what will it be will it be doing something for someone trying to save a life Last Hour, the story of 9-11's first victim was produced by Sirica Heron and narrated by Mary McAvoy. It was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.